Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. We face challenges every single day. Some of the challenges we choose, like maybe running a little farther on our running track, and those might be easier for us to smile at and, and be flexible with, even when it gets difficult. But some of our challenges are not chosen, and some even come from left field, and those are harder to smile at. So whether it's a diagnosis of an illness or the news of a, a friend's death or the loss of a job or even a bicycle accident, you are being asked to step up to that challenge. And there's just no way you can live a full life without being hurt. But it doesn't have to be that heavy, categorized, predicted hurt that crushes you. It can be more like a knife that cuts through butter. And it comes from being a mortal being that knows they will eventually lose everything and yet still cares. My name is Joanne Dahl. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. You can learn more about me from my website www.joandahl as one word dot com so j-o-a-n-n-e d-a-h-l dot com This series is called ACT Taking Hurt to Hope and it requires you to step up to the plate and act Acceptance and commitment therapy will show you how to act in ways that will help you to accept what you can't change and move forward into your valued life. My guest today is Dr. Jen Gregg. She is a clinical psychologist and associate professor at San Jose State University. Uh, Jen is a recognized ACT trainer and she is a researcher who um, began uh, studying ACT with Steve Hayes, who was our guest last week and nearly 20 years ago. You can read more about Jen at her website at the university, www.sjsu.edu forward slash people forward slash Jennifer dot Greg, and that's spelled with three G's, G-R-E-G-G. So, Jen, I'm really happy to welcome you. Thank you, Joanne. It's nice to be here. Jen, uh, I know that you've worked with people um, who are challenged in different ways, and I'm really curious, when you think about uh, people are faced with a challenge that really hurts, like a divorce situation or loss of a job or even a diagnosis like diabetes for example and these re- 
these challenges require the person to step up and change their life. So if a person was here right now who just you know, has such a challenge and needs to change their lifestyle, you know, like lose weight or stop smoking or make new friends. So how, how would you think, Jen, as an ACT therapist, how would you help people to motivate to make these changes? Well, I think the first thing that we would tell somebody in that situation, I think, breathe. <laughs> Sometimes literally, uh, because what happens often when we're overwhelmed or when we realize that we have to do something different, we forget to keep living. The fear sort of takes over. And I guess in some ways I should say trying not to have the fear that is there takes over. That those efforts are what start to dominate. Mm-hmm. So... So when when a change suddenly happens, people get scared. Life is not the way I'm, you know, I had planned. Uh, something's happened, yes. and and the first. And, well, I was going to say, and they they it all feels like it's here, that that the, the things that feel overwhelming or the task at hand. You know, if, for instance, if you're thinking about starting to exercise, that you think you need to start taking better care of yourself, which to some degree, lots of us have that thought. Uh, the task at hand feels so big that it feels like all of the reasons why we can't do it are right here and everything is true. And so in some ways, the first thing we want to tell people is breathe, take a breath, get a little bit of perspective, enough to notice that that's a thought and to check in. From an act perspective, we would say, check in with your values. See what really matters and why it would matter to make a change. Okay. So by taking a breath, um, was, would that help people to um, get that distance? Um, yes. And a little wiggle room? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just a little wiggle room. Often is all the, all the, the thoughts dominate so much and the plans and the analysis so that we don't have to feel overwhelmed that even if you take a second to breathe sometimes, you can get the perspective of that it's not all right here, right now. Mm-hmm. So if the person now has that, they breathe a little and, and feel that uh, maybe they do have some freedom of choosing what to do, how, how, you know, some of these changes are very difficult to make, like um, exercise, for example. If, you're, if you have an ex- extra weight, excessive weight, it is difficult to exercise. How do you motivate yourself to actually, you know, take these steps? Absolutely. It is tremendously difficult. So, you know, one of the first things we want to say over and over is this if this was easy, you would have done it. This is really hard to do. So but the motivation lies in helping people connect with why. Why it would matter. People do not lose and keep off weight and make sustained life changes when it's just in order to look better or just in order to fit into genes. It is always about why it would matter that you're here in 20 years and why it would matter to take care of your body rather than these short-term fixes to make ourselves feel better or less uncomfortable. Jen, what you're saying is really, really important. Um, So you're saying that if the motivation is about vanity 
about mm-hmm. about looking good, uh, looking good in your jeans, or uh, or or if it's about living to, up to someone else's expectations, that that's not gonna that's not gonna help you in the long run. Exactly, and and we know this from basic science as well as from experience and from clinical studies. The terms that we use in ACT that are a little technical are tracking compliance. When you're doing things in order to um, get approval or to follow a rule or to for a short-term fix, we call that compliance. Compliance doesn't maintain behavior over long time, long term for people. But if we can hook people in to what we call tracking or their own really strongly held values, like, for instance, for a person who would like to take better care of themselves, if if we can ask and really have people explore, why would it matter that I take care of my body? How do I want to be with my body? Then we automatically people put less sugar and less junk food into it, which starts that process with one small step. Okay, Jen, so if we had a person right here with us sitting with, at the coffee table here with us now in this conversation, who, um, and because I think often most of us are thinking that they want to look good, that this is often the reason, or they might, actually the opposite, they, they want to you know, get rid of looking bad. But how would you, talk, how would you speak to someone um, when, if you were trying to find that value of real, like really taking care of yourself rather than just wanting to look good, what would you say to that person? Well, I think some of the questions I would ask would be things like, how, if, if we could jump ahead 10 years from now and we didn't have any access to what you looked like or whether you fit in your jeans, but, but I was going to ask you 10 years from now, how did you take care of your body for the last 10 years? What would you be proud to look back and see yourself say there? And it's kind of a complicated way to ask it, but if we can get people to think about what they would be proud to look back and see themselves start doing now, often how people want to treat their body and what they actually put in their body or how they take care of it with exercise or getting enough sleep or drinking enough water or managing what's in front of them, they're hugely discrepant. So sometimes if we can just help people hook into, rather than thinking about how am I going to lose five pounds, instead thinking about how, how can I take care of my body today, then we hook into that tracking instead of that pliance. Okay. So um, once I was I was thinking uh, that you know you don't want to have on your gravestone um, Louise lost that five pounds at the end of her life that <laughs> <laughs> that actually losing weight has no value in the way you're talking about it it, it only would have a value in if you could actually live a, a life quality of your choice not right. the act, not the actual weight loss. Right, and we have to remember that there are lots of studies now that show that even people who are overweight, who maintain a high level of fitness, can live long and healthy lives. So the emphasis has to be off of pound-by-pound focus and more on, well, how do I want to take care of myself? How do I get myself towards being fit, no matter what size I am? Mm -hmm. 
Jen, I know that you, um, I called you courageous uh, in the last show, and one of the reasons is because you're a woman I admire in the research that you have done, partly that you have gone out and pioneered work in, in diabetes, which was a very brand new, and the brand new application of ACT, mm-hmm. and, al- and also that you did it in a, in a special way uh, in San Francisco. Could you tell, tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. So um, my background is actually very much in ACT, and but I have a lot of interest and have always had a lot of interest in people who are medically sick. So um, what we did is we went into a low-income uh, clinic outside of San Francisco where the vast majority of the patients had no type of health insurance and who were really undercared for in a lot of ways, medically. Many of them were immigrants. Uh, San Francisco is an incredibly diverse area. So um, there were people from just about every culture and every walk of life. Um, And we went into this clinic that really had a high need for help managing their diabetes patients uh, and offered them uh, act. We tried at first actually to offer them weekly act groups uh, to learn about um, some of these principles and to think about, start thinking about their values. Um, and we found that the people in our population couldn't get to a clinic every week, couldn't get childcare every week, couldn't just didn't have the same kind of help and resources that people who are often in these types of trials are in. So we arranged a lot of logistical support to get them there one Saturday and spend one Saturday just infusing them with everything that we could to help. Um, and and the study that we did as a result of it looked like it made a difference and, and that mattered a lot, both to the people that were in our study and, and certainly to us, the researchers. Well, I know, Jen, that that is a humongous job to, to go out and do a, a <laughs> clinical trial like that in an in a atmosphere like that. So that's uh, it's just incredible to hear. Do you have um, a personal value yourself about um, helping people that don't normally get help? Absolutely. I do. Um, I the university that I work at has a lot of the same diversity, a lot of the same um, backgrounds, and culturally and economically for our students. Um, and I would have to say that I'm I'm an incredibly lucky person because I get to go uh, bring both act and psychology and sort of a love of science to a population of students that come from these backgrounds and I, I try with my patients as well. The, the, I think that the more that we can bring these principles to the people who really need them and sometimes for survival, uh, I think that that is uh, a mission that, that connects probably to a lot of our values. Mm. That's, that's very inspiring to hear, Jen. <laughs> Thank you. Jen, if we, I would imagine that there are people listening uh, with diabetes, and um, I'd like to hear how how do you approach diabetes and how, in a, from an act perspective? I mean, diabetes is a pretty medical issue. How do you approach it? Well, um, as I mentioned, values plays a big part. Uh, often, because people are coming 
maybe through a medical channel, and they might not be identifying that they uh, need a psychologist or need some kind of uh, psychosocial help with this. And so values is sometimes a, a neutral place to start where it we're not starting off talking about values and feelings. I mean, we're not talk, starting off talking about thoughts and feelings um, for somebody who thinks that they're getting more of a medical intervention. So we start with the values to help it feel a little bit more comfortable to start and then work backwards. So if the thing that matters to someone is taking care of their body, then we can pretty easily connect to what gets in the way of that. And with diabetes, with a lot of medical conditions, the themes are the same. It's it's unfair that this is happening. This shouldn't be happening to me. There's often shame, particularly with diabetes, and denial about what's in front of them to do. And, and so, again, we want to help them back up from all of that stuff, change their perspective with that content, while really, really spending a lot of time talking about what matters and why it would matter to stay alive. Mm-hmm. So could you explain um, what what it, the more specific advice, um, for example, of if, um, if a person was having uh, difficulty with their diabetes, uh, what would be some of the specific things you would you could offer to help? If, if someone was having uh, difficulty with their diabetes in terms of managing, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the the most specific things that we would do is really f- spend time, just probably like with any act population, um, f- getting in the room. What is what is the piece? What What is the thought that's there? What is the feeling that the person is struggling with? Because often when we're not doing something that is would be consistent with our values, if you think about it, what's happening there usually is that there's something we're struggling with that we don't want to have. Or we haven't stopped to pay attention to what's there. So if someone was having a hard time, if someone was sent to me because they were having a hard time managing their diabetes, the first thing I would do is spend lots of good, slow time really seeing what thoughts were there about the diabetes. Because, like I said, often it is, this isn't fair. I don't want to take care of my diabetes because it's not fair that all my friends get to go eat donuts, and I can't do that. Or it really wouldn't matter that much if I did this or did that. And both of those often are are a way to not have what's underneath that, which is this is scary, this is overwhelming, this is forever, every single day for the rest of my life, I have to get up and do things that are hard to do for anybody and I have to do them with the threat of if I don't do them, I could go blind or I could lose my feet or like there is this overwhelming piece in here that often people are just running like crazy to, to get away from. So so would you say, um, because you mentioned like donuts, and uh, would you say that w- when people are scared that that could be a, a quick fix uh, to help people control their emotions, and this would be what they shouldn't be doing, but it would be an, an easy quick fix to to get rid of those Absolutely. scared feelings. Yeah. Absolutely. When we're feeling bad, I mean, there's the... The term is here is comfort food. <laughs> like it, it literally implies that it's going to make us feel more comfortable. And people with diabetes walk around with discomfort from 
judgment from others and this really overwhelming set of things that they have to do and being scared and meeting people who are blind or who've died or and so yeah what we want is that quick comfort feeling and it, and it works <laughs> for a short period of time it just doesn't work in a long term way yeah yeah i saw some ice cream uh, the other day it was called uh, chocolate therapy <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how we orient to this type of thing in our culture. And and what's unique, I think, a little bit about diabetes is, is that diabetes isn't like being diagnosed with cancer where you have an illness and the doctors have to fight it. Diabetes is a – if you can have diabetes for a long and healthy life, if you manage it and you keep your blood sugar the same level as somebody who doesn't have diabetes, then you largely can – avoid most if not all of the complications of diabetes that could hurt, harm you so it makes it better and much harder because it's not necessarily a death sentence but there's all of this responsibility that that wears on people and then they need some chocolate therapy yeah. so you're saying that people maybe try avoid the whole fear altogether by maybe not even you know thinking they have diabetes by yes that would be a way of avoiding that fear Absolutely. And we see a range of that from people who are in complete denial and don't ever check anything or get anything or go to the doctor, all the way to people who are generally pretty good at managing their diabetes, who go through periods where they just want to minimize how important it is to do this task or that task or exercise isn't that important to me because I have all this other medicine or like that they, where people sort of buy into these thoughts so that they don't have to feel so vulnerable. Hmm. Jen, this is fascinating to talk about diabetes, but I do want to go into another area that I know that you're that you're into and that's um I know that you're working with people who are the, at the final stages of their lives in palliative care. And mm-hmm. um I wonder um what type of experience that is for you personally because we've talked now a lot about values. And I wonder when, mm-hmm. when, when you're with these people who know they're going to die, how, how are, does values work there? Well, I would say it's, it's not the most important thing and sometimes it's the only thing. Like it is both for me and for them, this is what matters, I think. And I have seen the most extraordinary things working with this population because I have seen people who get to the end of their life and who are just, you know, must be filled with fear and are able to back up from that and make extraordinary changes, extraordinary steps towards their values at a time where we would all sort of understand if they were too scared to move. And they move, and it, and and in some ways, I've what I've learned, I think, is that it doesn't matter if you can get around on your feet, and it doesn't matter if you have six months or six days ahead of you. That at every point you can have that vitality if you can find ways to keep living your values with intention and an open heart and vulnerability. It's really extraordinary. Do, do you have any um, examples of how that might look? Someone who is it, it can do that. I, I, I actually do. I have a wonderful example of a man that I worked with who was sent to me because he became suicidal when he found out that he was terminally ill. He had 
been having problems with his stomach for a long time and had gone to his doctor many, many times. And the doctor had continuously misdiagnosed him until they finally, years later, found out that it was terminal cancer and he was going to die pretty quickly. And he was devastated because he had been trying for so long to be heard about this. And in working with him, he we came upon that his biggest value was honor, that that was really the thing that, you know, had had really been powerful for him in his life. And as he got closer to the end of his life, he found all of these amazing ways to live this value of honor until he finally went to his doctor's office, his physician who had misdiagnosed him. And she, the, doc, the physician didn't want to see him because she had felt terrible about what had happened and he just waited he wasn't you know he wasn't trying to be powerful or aggressive he just waited until she finally at the end of the day she saw him and he walked into her office and he said and everybody had been telling him for months that he should sue her and that um that you know that this had been really bad that had happened to him and he just walked into her office and he just walked right up to her and stuck out his hand and said, I forgive you. We all make mistakes. That's all that this was. And I forgive you. And the physician was crying and he was crying. And and, and he died not long after that. And I think he's just such a wonderful example of what this work is. Of even in the face of terrifying things, we can move towards our values and, and have this vitality. Mm. That's a wonderful story, Jen. Um, if, if there's somebody listening now that's um, actually with someone who is what is dying, um, how could a person who's on the side uh, find their own values in, in, in helping someone or being supportive to someone who is at the end of their life? Well, I have a, a conceptual answer and a practical answer. Mm-hmm. Conceptually, I would say... Lean in. That's it. Because people sometimes get so scared of people who are at the end of their life that they forget to lean into them. And the practical answer is touch them. Because mm-hmm. in the same vein, we we get a little scared of death. And even though everybody logically knows it's not contagious, we forget to keep touching people who are dying. And so, you know, obviously watch your boundaries and watch, make sure it's an appropriate space. But if it is, then remember to touch them. Mm. I like that, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Jen, for talking with us today. Um, I think everyone can hear that you're a very inspiring therapist and, and people are so lucky to have contact with you as well as your students. Wow. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So thank you so much for being with us. Our guest today has been Dr. Jen Gregg. Uh, You can uh, learn more about Jen on her website, um, uh, which was um, www.sjsu.edu front slash people, front slash Jennifer dot Greg, G-R-E-G-G. Um, next week, uh, oh, also you can, we can, you can learn more about ACT on the contextualpsychology.org 
webpage. And next week, we're going to be talking with Dr. Brian Kirsch, who is a pain specialist in Toronto, who now practices ACT in his pain clinic. So remember, no matter what your challenge is, you can create a life that you love. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.